0: All right, so if you have a Bible, turn with, you, turn with me uh, to Titus chapter number one. Titus chapter one. Uh, we opened up and began this uh, series last week uh, looking at kind of that big, long opening. It's interesting that Paul would give such a, a kind of a long opening for such a short book. Um, but as we learned uh, in, this, in this short little book, just three chapters, uh, just a few verses really. It's a quick, we're going to go through it kind of quickly Uh, over the next few weeks, uh, this book, we're going to finish chapter one, for instance, today. Um, But we look at that opening and Paul writes this kind of big opening saying he's a servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ. And here's what I've come to do. I'm for the sake of the faith of God's elect uh, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And he he continues on with this long sentence. But what he was doing was establishing his authority uh, because Titus was going to be given a great task. He's going to be given a great task because this little island of Crete uh, was not uh, it was famous for some wrong reasons. Uh, it was uh, it was known for piracy. <laughs> I mean there was pirates going on there was a trade city it's kind of like a stopping point. Paul stopped there at some point in his ministry uh, and that's where probably the gospel started uh, to spread on this island. And so now we learn that Paul has come specific like Paul is writing to to, to Titus to, for a very specific purpose to instruct him, and we're going to see that very specific purpose right at the very beginning. Uh, and look at chapter five, or chapter one, verse five. It says, "This. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you." And so, basically, saying, "Look, look, there, it's a, it's a, it's this fledgling little church. There's a church that's been started. It's planted. There's, there's some house churches going on over throughout the island." And here, there's some important things that need to be put into order because the gospel is important. Ultimately, because the gospel is important, this made what his task was going to be to be important. And so what we're going to see is, and we're going to look at this, and I I have some of you have notes online. You don't have this, but I'll try to make it clear what the main points are. Uh, And you can feel free to type notes, write notes. Try to remember them. Problem is, I try to remember my sermons from last week, and it's like, what were those four points again sometimes? So I'm sure it's t- tough to remember. Uh, that's why it's good to take notes. So, uh, but what I want us to do is, I mean, the gospel, what we learn is the gospel spreads. Last week, it spreads in unlikely places. And the gospel spreads like wildfire uh, when people are just faithful to share it. Like, and, and oftentimes it comes through persecution, it comes through challenges, obstacles, but yet those obstacles never seem to get in the way. Uh, in another one of Paul's writings, it talks about how the gospel is not bound. I mean, God's word cannot be bound. Even like a pandemic couldn't bind up and hold God's word from being spread. It continues to spread. We might adjust through challenges and those kind of things, but ultimately God's word is not going to be bound. It can't be held off. And so the gospel spreads, but as the gospel spreads and as, but the problem is we have a great deceiver. Scripture tells us all about the devil, that he is a a liar and a deceiver. Uh, He is like a a, a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. He's wanting to deceive and trick people into living a life that is ungodly, that or maybe even looks godly, but isn't an actual true believer. That's probably actually the best people he wants is church people because they have a false hope. They go to church, they do some good things, but they have a false hope. Hope, because they haven't put faith in Christ alone, by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so Paul is going to write this letter. And so here's the reality, though, is like, what does a church need? What is, what is a gospel-centered church? Okay, so these churches, they have, they're existing. On Crete, there are these, these new churches, they exist. But what do they need? What's needed in these churches to protect from error, to keep it from wandering off or having wrong doctrine? Like, what is necessary? What we're going to quickly see is there's a few things specifically. It's throughout Scripture, there's a lot of things. I mean, people have written books, pastors. There's a ministry by Mark Dever called Nine Marks, and it's the nine marks of a healthy church. So, I mean, we could list on and on the marks of a healthy church, but specifically from this passage as we're walking through Titus, what does a gospel-centered church need? First is this, and this is what we're taking notes here. First one is this, is leaders. What's needed is leaders whose character is above reproach. What's needed in a healthy church? It's needed to have elders and overseers, pastors. What I want to just quickly put is this. Look at verse five again. So he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so he's to appoint specifically these elders. Well, in Scripture, we see kind of this, in our English translation, we see these three kind of words that you'll catch sometimes as you're reading, even in Paul's writings. You'll see elder, you'll see overseer sometimes, and you'll also see pastor. All three of those words, those titles, that is a specific office, and it's one office. It's the office of elder, pastor, overseer. And here, there too, Paul's saying, I want you to go to town to town, and I want you to appoint elders, these elders, to establish and to help maintain, put it into order, these churches. But look at verse uh, verse 10, or, or sorry, looking at, looking, looking at this, what we're going to see in verse 6 is this. If anyone, here's what he's going to say, because why? it's not just appoint leaders, right? Like, it's great to have a leader who can lead, like, Let's get a type A personality guy who is a go-getter, who can lead, who's maybe well uh, thought of in the business community. And let's put someone like that because he can help grow an organization. He can help lead into the next generation. He can take what's fledgling and grow it. Like he just has some talent into it. And so he can do these things. But notice what's important here. The importance is, is specifically on leaders and these elder pastor overseers whose character is above reproach. Notice you're going to see it as I read these qualifications for this specific office. Look what he says in verse six. Notice this. If, so he's saying, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward. So there you go. See, he's, he's, you see overseer this time. So for an overseer in verse seven, referring to the same thing as appointing elders, elders. So for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. You notice right there again in verse six, if anyone is above reproach here as God's stewards in verse seven must be above reproach. And then it lists off. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So he's listing off a lot of character qualities. And the point is this, and I think this is where a lot of times we miss the boat in a church leadership. We look for that person who is a type one, a type A person who's gonna be a good leader or is a strong, has strong business acumen. And so they are the natural people to put in places of leadership. But what is above all of those things? I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, I think we're all as a society infatuated with leadership. I mean, if you go to my office in our house and you look at my bookshelf, you're going to see a lot of books on leadership. Uh, I I love to read on leadership. Leadership's important. We need strong, gifted leaders. But what we often don't see when you're talking about leadership is the character of the leader. What's he like? What's his home life like? What's he talk about when no one's around? What does he watch when no one's looking? It's all about character. Character the character of this godly leader, and specifically, it's a person who's above reproach. Well, what does it mean to be above reproach? What does it mean to, to be a, someone who is, is high in character? Well, I, I love this passage because this passage gives us this list, very specific. It's very specific on what to look for in an elder pastor overseer. What should they, what should they look like? Uh, When Amanda and I, when we started dating, uh, she had this, she has this Bible in her house and it's still, I think it's somewhere when we moved, who knows where it is. It's probably in a drawer somewhere, but she had this Bible that she had in college. And in that Bible, there was this sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper was this list of what she's looking for in a guy. And it was this list. And in this list that she was looking for in a guy was all these things that I felt like I was not (laughs) when I finally got to see that list. It's like, man, I'm not very tall, and, you know, I'm not even sure if I'm good looking, uh, you know, uh, maybe I have a beard, but I only got a beard then. So I don't know what it was about me. But when you look at that list, I was like, oh, man, when I finally got to see it, I don't know if you let me see it right away. It was kind of like, you know, but a lot of her list, though, was uh, not about tall, dark and handsome, which I'm not any of those things. Uh, you know, it was it was about character. She was looking for someone who could lead, who, someone who was godly, who was a, a person who loved well, loved his family well, would love her well. And she's looking for character qualities in that person. You see, here we get Paul listing out what an elder should look like. Not physically, not that he's like Saul in the Old Testament, standing in tatcher above the rest of the country as a king. No, he is the one who, uh, who is to be of high character. And so he lists out these things. He mentions reproach twice. You see, that word reproach, uh, kind of the Greek term is more of a technical word, meaning not chargeable with an offense. Basically, what he's suggesting and what Paul is not suggesting is that this man is sinless. He's flawless. Like you look at him and you can't find a flaw. I mean, he is literally like almost like God incarnate on earth. Like that's what you're looking for. If that was the case, no one would be able to be uh, an elder pastor or overseer. Rather, he's saying that there should not be any sin in their lives which would call into question their character and godliness. Like, you wouldn't call into question their character or their godliness. There's no one that's going to be like, <coughs> like he, he, no one should be able to charge him with some offense and first, what we notice, if you look back at this, uh, at this qualification, what you see is we see the character of a godly leader is evidenced in his home life. First, we see the character is evidenced specifically in the home. He's the husband of one wife. Well, What does this mean? You know, this is, this is also heavily debated in the church as well. What does this actually mean? But first, it is unlikely that Paul means that a pastor, elder, or overseer must be married, right? It doesn't mean that he has to be. It's a requirement that he must be married. But this, this is mentioned because the assumption is that most men are going to be married. And as we will we'll see uh, next with children, just because he mentions about the elders' children doesn't mean to be an elder, pastor, overseer, you have to have kids. Also, this doesn't mean that Paul is referring to polygamy, having more than one wife uh, at a time. So what, what is Paul saying here? The Greek, really the Greek helps us again here. A more literal translation of this phrase is he's a one woman man. Again, to connect this to the above reproach or blameless word from earlier, this man should be solely committed to his wife in his actions, in his heart. He should not be known uh, to be around the office as a flirtatious person. He should have a reputation of total devotion to his wife. And we're not going to go into full detail and full discussion on just this one part of the qualifications, but the main point is that this man is high in character and he can't be charged with sexual sin and that he is devoted to his wife. But Paul goes on, not not only should he be a man of sexual integrity, but his children should be believers, faithful, and not open to the charge of debauchery or wild living, I guess you could say, living wildly or insubordination. You might ask again, why is this so important? Why isn't it so important that, like, we should pay attention to the, the children? I got two in this room right now. Like, why should we be paying attention to, to the, the pastor, elder, overseer's children? Why is that a big deal? Why can't, like, why, why does it matter if they're kind of crazy? And the pastor, though, he's solid, man. He's, he's great. He loves the Lord. There's no blame in him, but his kids are crazy and they live all in the world. They're a mess. Why is that a big deal? Well, 1 Timothy 3.5 tells us, for if someone does not know, how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If he can't manage his own household, how can he manage Christ's church? 1 Timothy 3.5. You see, the leader must be blameless. He must be above reproach. He should be an example. And if he cannot do it on his own, he cannot be qualified to lead in God's church, plain and simple. So the godly leader leads his family well as a man of high character. But let me say this, godly leadership doesn't mean there is an absence of difficulties, but rather, how does the leader handle those difficulties? When is it, I mean, does it mean his kids are perfect and flawless? No, it means that he leads in the home, that he leads through the challenges, through the wayward child. How is he leading? How is he attempting to correct or discipline? We pay attention to those things. Why? That's important because the leader is an example to the flock. He's an example to the church. And so here, as we continue on, he lists, I want to keep moving a little bit. Here, he lists five negatives and six positives. I want to first read the negatives. Look at verse 7. Here's the negative side of things, like what shouldn't be in in this character of a godly leader. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must, notice these things here. Here's the the negative side. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So he's not to be these things. He's not, to be, uh, he's not to be lost in these things. But notice the positive things that, he, that are supposed to be marks of this godly leader who's above reproach. Verse 8 says this, uh, but, but rather he should be what? Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm Notice this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, all of these qualifications that we're looking at of the leader's character are important. I mean, why again, why would it be needed? Why is this such an important part of the health of a church? Because again, he is, leaders are naturally models to those that follow Paul isn't just concerned about the leader's personal character for his own sake. Paul is focused on the bigger implications that is on Christ's church. You see a leader's actions and character have a massive impact on others. He should be setting the standard for godliness, and it is evidenced through uh, not only his family family life, but through his own personal life. You know, here, the, the importance is on his character. I think we can get so caught up on this person, does he have the, the, does he have the tools, right? Does he, does he ha- is he gifted? Is he creative? Is he smart? Does he lead people well? Do people just naturally follow him? No, the focus here, Paul's saying, is listen, as you're Titus, as you're appointing these elders, focus on character, focus on godliness, focus on these things. His example. So, not only does the church need pastors, elders overseas to be men of godly character, who are above reproach. The second one is this this is your second point here. The church needs leaders who are competent in. So the church needs leaders who are competent in and committed to sound doctrine and teaching. The church needs leaders who are competent in and committed to sound doctrine and teaching. That's what we see in verse 9. So Paul is focused on the character of this godly man. He leads it in at home in his lifestyle. He's not someone who is quick in his anger, quick temper. He's not drunk. He's not violent. He's not greedy for gain, but rather he's hospitable. All these things, these great character qualities. But here he transitions to their aptitude in Scripture, and they're holding firm and holding fast to sound doctrine and teaching. Because look at verse 9. He must hold firm holds on firm to this. He doesn't, he's not easily moved. He's not pulled into culture. Culture isn't swaying uh, exactly what shifts like so much we're seeing with deconstruction in our culture today. Deconstructing your faith. He's not shifting and shaking away from uh, the the sound teaching and the the firm doctrine of God's Word. Notice what he says in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Specifically, Even as we talk about this, the the teachings of Christ and the apostles, what we have in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, God's holy word. He holds firm to the trustworthy word is taught. Why? Why must a pastor, elder overseer be strong in teaching? Because what you're going to notice is when you, (coughs) excuse me, when you look at the qualifications, right? We're talking about this elder pastor overseer. There is a difference between the office of elder, pastor, overseer, and deacon. In Scripture, we see that in in, uh, 1 Timothy 3. We get the qualifications for an elder, pastor, overseer, and we also get the qualifications for a deacon. Well, the deacon, we know, some of you have been reading through the book of Acts. As you look at Acts, we see in uh, Acts 6, as as the church uh, is continuing to expand and grow, there's a lot more needs among the people. And these needs were pulling the apostles away from studying God's Word so they could teach and preach and they was taken away from their time in prayer because they were just there was so many needs and so what did they do they institute deacons a deacon ministry literally means a, a servant there are these serving tables they were literally to go out and help meet the needs of the widows and the different ones who had needs and so they serve so you'll notice in the qualifications the qualifications are basically the same between a deacon and an overseer what's the one difference the one difference is he's able to teach, it's in this specific area. We see it more specifically in Timothy where he says he's able to teach. Here, it's a little bit more, uh, a little more wordy. Verse nine, he must hold firm to the word, trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction, notice, in sound doctrine and also the ability to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, he needs to be competent in and committed to sound doctrine and teaching. We see this is a mark of uh, what's needed for a healthy church. But you might ask, like, why? Why do all of these things... I mean, we'd say probably, okay, it's good. Like, I mean, yeah, we want people with high character. We want people with this. But why is that such an important part of a healthy church? Well, one, you'll notice, you just watch culture, right? What happens when a, a, a quote, godly leader falls, Right? We, we, I mean, there's, there's podcasts written on, uh, on, on churches and their, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, probably. You might have heard of that. It became like one of the top trending um, podcasts on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, we see the rise and fall of leaders all the time, right? And what happens to those churches? Those churches floundered, fail. It affects the faith of the people who attended those churches you see a leader's character and his competence in staying in the word of God and staying in sound teaching and doctrine, not letting culture say, but, 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 you know, that was for, that was for a long time ago. That was for Paul's day. Like, like the, you know, some of those things on, uh, on homosexuality. And I mean, like, like we're a shifting culture. It's changed. It's different today than it was then. And so what can happen is culture can shift, but what happens if the leader starts to shift? See, I was reading just over Christmas. There's a church um, uh, who uh, just, just, just recently, not too long ago, it was a church that uh, it, was, it was long. It was this long article that I read, and it was talking about how this, this church, in just a matter of four years, went from, I mean, a solid, uh, what we'd say is like sound in teaching and doctrine, but it shifted to where eventually they appointed an elder, and only it took only took four years. For them to appoint an elder who did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that the eh, Scriptures—it's not—it's not—it's not—you know, there's there's some, maybe there's some errors, and I don't mean just errors like translation type of errors like that. Can maybe I mean like in the original text, uh, the original manuscripts as Paul wrote and as uh, as God's Word is being written, that there's errors. It only took four years for church. How does that happen? It happens through slow shifts and changes and oftentimes in the leader. The leader shifts the teaching. He shifts the teaching a little bit. becomes maybe more man-centric or moralistic or uh, encouraging, uplifting, and focusing on you, right? Like, you know, we, we can look at Joel Osteen's, like, books and we see, like, you know, there's this one, the power of the I am. And it's not the power of the great I am. It's the power of the I am statements. I am Able to do this. I am strong enough. I am uh, a good person. Like I am. And we can focus on you. And it can, it can be easy shifts and it can sound good. And you're like, man, that's good. You feel let, leave encouraged. But that shift leads to down a, a slippery slope of eventually saying, uh, Is God's word really trustworthy? And this is needed in healthy churches, is needed to have men of high character leading. The church in leading in the teaching and preaching, and they're competent and they hold fast to the word as taught, not their own ideas. And you say again, why? Because here's why. Look, this is point number three. The church needs leaders who guard against false gospels. The church needs leaders. It needs elders, pastors, overseers. It needs leaders in place to guard against false gospels. And this is why he says this. This is how he ends this chapter. Look at verse 10. So he's given, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Notice the connection. The connection word is for. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, I quoted this last week, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. And look at the strong language Paul's writing to, to Titus. Rebuke them strong, sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Notice this, verse 16. This is a lot of people in our culture. If you're not careful, this could be you too. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. I've heard it put this way: like a Christian atheist, someone who says they believe in God but lives as if He doesn't exist. You know, you say, "Oh yeah, I love God. I I know God. I believe in God." But my lifestyle is far from Him. My lifestyle shows that I don't really believe there's a God. And here he says it this way, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Who's he referring to in that verse? I mean, we would, I would love to just apply that to us, right? And say, I mean, that's, that's just people. But specifically, he's referring to these false teachers, these people who are preaching another gospel. And he gives us a clue to who this audience is. Look at verse 10 again. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. You're like, that sounds like a terrible party to be at. Yes, it would be a terrible party to be at. He's referring to a group of people. He's referring to a group of people and he says, yeah, sometimes this stuff comes in my head. And I'm like, I probably shouldn't have said it, but I said it anyway. You know, but like here, this group of people, what are they? Well, I read in Acts yesterday and we looked at this a few weeks ago as well. What happened at the Jerusalem council? Why was the Jerusalem council so important in the church? Because there was a group of people like these people who were saying, the gospel isn't Jesus saves by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not, it's not just that. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow some of the Jewish ritual dietary laws. You need to follow these things. You need to, it's a false gospel. It's, an, it's not good news. That sounds like terrible news, actually. Like, why would I have to endure these kind of things? Why would I have to strive and pursue these things? You see, this is why the church needs leaders who guard against these things because that is easy to creep up into a church. Someone walks in this door and you start looking them over and saying, man, I don't know about that person. You start judging them before you even know who their heart. Are they a person of character? You don't know yet. And then what do you do? You expect things of them. We put expectations. It's how legalism can creep in any of our hearts. It's easy to look on people and say, oh, oh man, they don't, they don't raise their children, right? <laughs> they're not doing it. They're not doing the homeschool way or they're, oh, they chose public school or whatever. You know, we, we play these games all day. And we can put expectations on people. Oh man, they're not using the right translation or they're not, they're not uh, listening to good music during the week. They're, they listen to other kinds of music or whatever. We can put all kinds of things on. Yes, we want to grow. I mean, this is, Paul writes this. Look what he says again. Go back to chapter one, very, the very beginning. Paul says this, Paul is servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect notice this and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness you see it's a growth thing we grow in godliness and we need to be patient sometimes with people but we need to protect at all costs when the gospel starts becoming diluted if we're going to say oh it's gospel plus you see Jesus plus anything that's Wrong math, right? Like you try, to, you try to add something to Jesus, it's not. It doesn't work. You're taking away Jesus. You, you, you can't just say, hey, it's Jesus plus baptism saves. Or, or Jesus plus um, uh, uh, reading your Bible every day and praying every day is what saves you. No, what saves you is grace. It's all of grace. Is, that's, why, that's why that song is so good. It, he, all you unfaithful come. Because we're the unfaithful ones. He's the holy one. He was the faithful one. Where Adam sinned, where Adam sinned, Christ, the the greater Adam, when Jesus comes, he does exactly what Adam didn't do. Adam didn't obey the Father perfectly. Jesus comes and he obeys the Father perfectly. He fulfills every aspect of him. He has relationships with all people and never once sins, he never once lusts, he never once says something harshly. Man, even sometimes, like yesterday, I mean, I got hurt and let something slip out of my mouth I shouldn't have said. And like, it can easily, things can easily come up into your mind and heart. Jesus never once had a single wrong thought ever. It's remarkable. He perfectly followed the Lord's will and he goes all the way to the cross. And why does he do this? Why is all of this important? It's because the gospel is sacred and it is good news. It's like, listen, If you told me, hey, do this, do this, do this, and I got to do a thousand things to get to heaven. That does not sound like good news. (laughs) That sounds like terrible news. It sounds like I'm in trouble. It sounds like, oh no, I can't do those things. And here's the thing, we can even look at these qualifications and go, man, you're like, Eric, like that is, that's, that's, that's harsh. How do you, how can you never do, how can you continually do these things? You see, False teaching and false doctrine and following and trying to hold up to a certain standard for earning salvation or earning favor from God, you're never, you're never going to be able to do it. You will continually be, I think John Piper says it this way, it's the debtor's ethic. You will continue to be indebted. You try to pay back God, guess what? You, just try, you paid back God with the ability that he gave you, still in debt. You can try to pay him back with some more worship, still in debt. You see, the debt, though, Jesus paid it all. we saying this, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He paid the debt for us. We then respond to that gospel with worship. We respond to it with submission and obedience. You see, the gospel spreads, and it does bring an urgency and a need for godly leaders who are high in character, are committed to sound teaching, who guard the flock. My boys and I, at my request, not theirs, we watched this documentary video the other night on uh, bears i just thought it'd be cool it on the apple plus and there was some bears and and they were like why does dad want to watch a bunch of bears they enjoyed it i watched them laugh like crazy uh and so <clears throat> but you know they, they followed this 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 mama bear and they heard two little bears and there was a few moments where we were getting a little nervous is, is that child gonna, that, that whatever they're called the cub gonna die Uh, or not, because this other big old massive bear was trying to to kill and trying to stalk the mom to try to get the the little cubs. But you know what mama bear does? Mama bear fights. She fights for her kids. She's going to protect them at all costs. And you can see it. I mean, those claws and those fights, they roared each other. It was pretty awesome. I I enjoyed it. I think they did too. But um, but what is it? That's what he's saying. This leader needs to guard it at all costs, protect it, Protect the flock from false gospels and false teaching. And first of all, as a church, I want to kind of as we end, uh, is this: is first of all, as a church, we want to be committed to having godly leaders who are above reproach and committed to sound doctrine. You know, and hopefully in the coming years, God is going to raise up some men who fit this description, who will come alongside in the ministry as elders. And then eventually some some deacons as well to help serve in ministry roles. But what are we looking for in those areas? What are we looking for? We're looking at what we just talked about. Men of high character. Men who are godly, who are above reproach, blameless. Who have an ability and a knowledge and a a skill with God's Word to teach it. Who can protect, who are going to pay attention to, to my teaching and to the teaching of small group leaders and others to protect the gospel from being a false gospel. There are men who've been vetted and their character is high and their commitment to the word is strong. You know, the health of the church, the protection of the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. You know, but for some of you, you might be like, okay, that's great. I mean, I'm glad we at Redeemer are committed to these things. But what does this mean for me? I'm not a leader. I'm not a man who's going to be an elder. Um, What's the point? You know, that's great. that I'm glad we desire these things. Here's what I want to challenge you. How about you? Did you notice that almost every single qualification of an elder, except for about one and a half of them, isn't only for the elder to attain? Think about it. It Is is it only godly leaders who shouldn't be drunk? Should pastors and elders be the only ones who aren't greedy or quick-tempered? Is it just okay for only elders to be hospitable, but others of you don't have to be? Of course not. We are all called to live godly, holy lives. You see, this is why the elder... The elder overseer, this leader meeting these qualifications is so important. They are role models and they set the tone for the people, for the church. You know, my, my, my children, they, they, they say certain things. They talk a certain way. They walk a certain way. They act a certain way because they watch their dad. They watch their mom. That you, Your children become like you if you're a parent. They, that you say the same phrases. Like I remember when I started talking like my dad, I was like, oh no, this is not good. My dad has a real heavy accent. Uh, not not that but I'm saying. Just in general, like the phrases, I find myself humming. What does my dad do? He hums. Like I get on an elevator, and I'm the elevator music for everyone else. <laughs> you know, just start humming away, right? Because I don't know what to do in those awkward moments. I think, but I got it from my dad, because <laughs> he's the one who was humming. You know, we we become like our parents, and so we want to, as Paul says. Because Paul ends uh, in one of his messages to the church, he says, "Be an imitator of me, as I imitate Christ." The reality is is that we're imitators, and this is why this role is important. But you might be saying, man, I'm a failure. I can't can't do these things. I'm unfaithful, like we sang earlier. I don't even meet half of these qualifications just as a church member. Can I encourage you to follow our Lord's command in Mark 1? Repent and believe the gospel. Can I tell you, this isn't just one-time decision to believe the gospel. This is a lifelong commitment to repent, believe the gospel And follow Jesus. Uh, Martin Luther is quoted as saying, Our Lord and Maker, our Master, Jesus Christ, when he said, Repent, willed that the whole life of believers be repentance. See, the mark of a a follower, an authentic fellow of Christ, should be a repentant heart. It's a person who's repenting. Man, it doesn't mean they're flawless and sinless. It means they live a life of repentance. They're pursuing Christ, they're trying to be growing and training in the knowledge of the truth, which accords with, which brings godliness. You say, here's the reality, you can change. Well, you can't, you don't have the power in you, but Christ can change you. See, the Bible tells us, we're gonna look at this in Titus. One of my favorite verses in this book of Titus is verse 11 in chapter two. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You see, it's his grace that comes to all people to save. And notice what the it is in the next verse, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You know what that is? What he's referring to in that verse we're gonna i'm gonna preach on that i'm excited to preach it I, like i'm so excited i'm trying to do it i'm trying to hold back now but i can't help it what he's saying is the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us you see god's grace trains it's not you don't train yourself you don't start working out and getting better and better it's the grace of god that trains you towards godliness that's why i will say over again i said it last week i'll say it this week i'll probably say it next week we preach the gospel to ourselves We look at the gospel. We remind ourselves of the gospel. We believe in the gospel because the gospel has the power to change you and take you from a self-righteous, religious, circumcision party type person to a person who says, it's all of grace. It's all of Christ. He is the one who deserves our worship. And listen, that's what we build our lives upon. We build our life on him and his word. And so as a church, if we want to grow, we need godly leaders godly men who are above reproach. We need leaders who are competent in uh, scripture and in, in doctrine and t- in the ability to teach it. And we need to guard. We need pastors, leaders, elders, and as a church to guard against false gospels because the gospel has the power to save. And we become godly not to earn God's acceptance, but rather we become godly because Jesus has accepted us. We pursue and we're trained in godliness as we recognize and realize what God has done for us. We remind ourselves of the gospel over and over again. I mean, don't leave today without knowing for sure that you are saved. I mean, it is all of grace. Put your trust in Christ, His completed work on the cross for you and for me. And I want to proclaim, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 11, I wish it were true of me. I'm like, follow Christ. (laughs) I want to say, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. Let's just imitate Christ. I'll continue to work on me as well. But let's imitate Christ. Let's follow Christ's lead in these areas. So let me pray. Father, thank you for the gift. What a gift your word is to us. What a gift Christ is in this gospel. And it is to be protected and guarded. Um, Not that you need, like in a sense, need people to protect the gospel. The gospel can protect itself on its own, of course. But there's plenty of people, deceivers, false teachers who want to proclaim another gospel. Or how legalism can can creep into our hearts and self-righteousness and think that we're good enough on our own. Or we need to do certain things to get God to accept us. I thank you that you have accepted us in Christ that if we just place our faith in Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb who was given, slain for us. God, maybe we may we put our faith in you every day. May we live a life of repentance, turning from sin and pursuing Christ. Thank you for this gospel, this wonderful good news. I pray that we would be people who are high in character, that we would lead out in these areas for the world to see as a display and as a model. So as I and other leaders display this and model this, may it happen in the church, and then may the church be a light and a beacon to the world that we're different, that we have a, a God who cares and who came to give us life in His name. God, help us to to center our lives on these things and build our lives towards uh, following you. On You are strong foundation, a chief cornerstone. So we trust you. We put our hope in you. And I pray maybe there's someone, whether they're listening online or, or uh, going to listen to this some other time in the weeks to come on a podcast, I pray that they would put their trust and their faith in you, that they would be discipled and trained in godliness grow and maybe someone who is far from you today will one day be an elder and a leader in a church maybe someone who becomes a pastor and leads another church or plants another church even from Redeemer I pray that you will raise up people and that will live wholly devoted lives to you and we ask all of this in your gracious son's name amen